welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams. And with us today, we have a special guest out of Seattle, Rich Anderson from Schrader, Goldmark, and Bender. Rich, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Good morning, Renee. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, as she said, my name is Rich Anderson. I am a personal injury attorney here in Seattle, Washington. Uh, I was a prosecutor for a couple of decades here in Seattle, doing mostly child abuse and sexual assault type crimes. And Spent a little time on the on the dark side uh, and moved over to plaintiff's work uh, a couple of years ago at the firm. We, we practice pretty much all kinds of um, personal injury. Uh, we med- medical malpractice, legal malpractice, um, auto, aviation, you name it, we do it. Um, and I spend most of my time uh, doing uh, crime victim representation. We are always happy when someone comes back from the dark side. Um, And I think what some of our listeners don't know is I used to be on the dark side. So welcome back on over. It wasn't that dark. I I worked for the (laughs) county defending um, uh, the county against lawsuits uh, and uh, the county self-insured. So we didn't have, uh, and because we represent the people that are suing us, uh, in theory, we we were obligated to actually treat them well and fairly. So it wasn't too bad. There you go. Now, we're here to discuss a case today that you've taken on, and and it's a little bit different than a lot of the normal cases we discuss on Parallel Justice. Now, I think our listeners are probably very used to, I like to go about six different ways when I ask questions. I don't like to follow a script, and, and I go down different paths, but this case is really tricky. And so I'm going to try to walk us through it pretty clearly. So I just want to start with the underlying incident that started this case. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, my client uh, is uh, a young woman who at the time of the incident and her involvement in the criminal justice system, she was nine years old. Uh, For obvious reasons, I'm not going to use her name, but we can call her Kay. Um, Kay is the eldest of uh, three daughters in a single income family run by her mom. her mom's a nurse, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, raising three young kids uh, while working part-time on your own 
uh, her mom uh, was concerned that that Kay wasn't really getting all the attention that she deserved and that she needed. And, and for obvious reasons, she, she reached out for help to see what she could do to sort of support Kay's needs. And she signed Kay up for uh, a chaperone or a, a, a big brother, big sister, in this case, a big sister with the, the big brother, big sisters program, which is all over the country. Um, on their very first outing in uh, April of 2016, uh, they went to one of our local parks. Um, she did some swimming, she ran around, uh, but Kay found herself most interested in uh, the group of men that were fishing off the side of the dock or the pier. And she just stood there just watching, just fascinated by the whole thing. And um, one of the men hooked a fish and invited her over and asked if she wanted to sort of help reel it in. Uh, well, unbeknownst to Kay or the chaperone, that man uh, was a man who had spent 23 some, 23 and a half years or 26 and a half years in prison for killing a 10 year old girl and suspected of sexually assaulting that girl. Uh, he was a suspect in a number of other crimes and he'd been relatively recently released from prison. Um, right there out in the open, in front of all the other fishermen and, and literally within 10 or 15 feet of the chaperone, uh, he managed to position himself so that as she's reeling in the fish and he's presumably appearing to help her reel the fish in, uh, he started touching her uh, both over and under the clothes uh, while shielding her from the view of other people by kind of squatting behind her and putting his arms or hands around her. Um, the chaperone is, you know, while this is going on, it's taking photographs. Everybody continues to go fishing. And like most kids that age, they don't immediately react or show fear or, or do anything to demonstrate something bad is happening. And it wasn't until they'd left the park a few minutes later that she told her chaperone what happened. So Mr. Sanchez, uh, uh, was, you know, they called the police. He was arrested. Um, he denied it. He went to jail awaiting trial. He was charged with child molestation in the first degree. Um, and about 14, 15 months later, after uh, spending that time in jail, he cut a plea bargain where he pled guilty to an amended charge, uh, which at the time he thought would have got served his time and he'd have gotten out of prison. So, and, and I think his guilty plea is really important to discuss before we get into the rest of the case. It's what okay. we call an Alfred plea. Yeah. So he wasn't admitting wrongdoing, but what was he no, saying? No, that's right. And, you know, just really briefly, uh, an Alfred plea, uh, that's what we call it here in Washington. There's a local um, case that uh, sort of talks about it too, but it stems from a, a 1969 Supreme Court decision, North Carolina versus Alford. Mr. Alford was charged with a, with a homicide and the death penalty was on the table. And he decided he'd, he'd cut a deal to get the death penalty off the table. Um, and basically the Supreme Court said that even if you are denying guilt, uh, your guilty plea can still be valid if you meet a certain number of criteria. And I'm sure most, if not all jurisdictions across the country have these types of pleas. They probably get called something different. But in our jurisdiction, uh, the requirements are that you, um, 
you're, you're represented by a competent counsel. Uh, you acknowledge that you've reviewed the evidence against you. Um, you, uh, you indicate that um, uh, you understand that if the case were to go to trial, there'd be a substantial likelihood that you would be found guilty, but you are maintaining your innocence, though you decide to take advantage of the prosecutor's plea bargain offer. So that's what he did. And it's a, it's, you know, you may call it a no contest plea or an Alfred plea or some other, some other, you know, nomenclature for it, but it's basically, I didn't do it, but I think I'm going to get convicted. Um, but I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it to basically hedge my bets to mitigate my risk. And in this case, a lot of the evidence against him were his previous criminal convictions and investigations and the time spent in prison. Well, I mean, that certainly was evidence. I doubt much, if any of that would have been admissible at trial. And, you know, although as a prosecutor, I, we tended not to utilize the Alfred plea very much, mostly because it, it's, it's kind of insulting to victims and, and they don't get a lot of satisfaction sometimes from the offender saying, I didn't do it. Um, but in this particular case, I mean, it's a straight up, he said, she said type situation uh, where there's gonna be no physical evidence. Uh, and more importantly, his defense was likely to be, um, you know, there's 50 people standing around watching and nobody saw a thing, this girl's making it up. So uh, I, I imagine that was, those were big factors in the prosecutor's decision to, to do the plea bargain. Yeah, but as we know, child sex abuse can happen in seconds. It's happened in schoolrooms with teachers watching and other kids. I mean, it can happen so quickly. Yeah, that was one of the most disturbing things about being a prosecutor is how easily it is for people to commit these types of crimes. And um, at the same time, it's frustrating because that's, even though everybody knows uh, that uh, child sexual assault is pretty commonplace. I mean, numbers one in three women, one in three boys, uh, whatever the numbers are today, but it's very, it's still very hard for people to say, you know what, this happened here and that guy did it. Um, especially in a circumstance where, like I said, there were lots of people around and nobody apparently saw anything. Now, I think most of our listeners listening to this are going to think automatically that we're here to talk about the case against Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And I do think they should know that there was a civil suit against them. So can you give yeah. us just a very quick breakdown of what happened sure. with the Big Brothers, Big Sisters case? Yeah. So after he pled guilty and, um, uh, you know, the criminal case aspect of it was over, uh, uh, mom hired a lawyer on her daughter's behalf. And uh, they sued Big Brother, Big Sisters for negligence in failing to properly chaperone the visit and simultaneously sued the offender, Mr. Sanchez, uh, for his conduct. Uh, you know, there was standard litigation practice back and forth for some time, but ultimately uh, a settlement was reached between uh, the plaintiff and Big Brother, Big Sister for a relatively nominal amount. And that case, that portion of the case was dismissed uh, after the settlement. After they settled with Big Brother, Big Sister, the plaintiff moved to dismiss the lawsuit against the individual defendant, and he objected to the dismissal. And he filed a counterclaim for defamation and various other uh, privacy-type 
claims in Washington. Now, I want to be clear just as we, before we move on from Big Brother, Big Sister, you know, they, they were sued. There are inherent risks to, to letting your kids go with a mentor. Um, but in general, BBS does do an outstanding job and, and they really provide invaluable services to kids who really need help. But, but it's important to point out that we also must always be vigilant. Now you mentioned the, the attorneys that your client originally retained, which were not you, right. also filed the case against the perpetrator. And we talk right. a lot about when to file a case against a perpetrator. And, and usually attorneys don't do it. Why do you think they chose to do so here? And, and how bad did that decision turn out to be? It, you know, that's a good question. <clears throat> that's a good question. And, and there are, I guess I, I guess I would say this. Um, you know, it's hard for me to put myself in a position of another uh, plaintiff's lawyer and, and sort of manufacture what they were thinking or, or so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to do that. But in my practice, uh, like you said, we generally don't advise clients to sue the individual perpetrator. Um, and there are reasons for that that are unique to Washington and there are reasons that are not. Um, but it, some of the practical aspects of it is that oftentimes when you're doing it, you're pursuing somebody who's either incarcerated or soon to be incarcerated or uh, just doesn't have the assets that make it worthwhile for the individual to do it. Um, I mean, there's you know, some satisfaction in, in holding them accountable, but hopefully they've been held accountable already by the criminal justice system. And if that's the case, oftentimes there's very, very little financial incentive for a victim to pursue the individual offender. Um, because despite the Alford plea, he was in some ways here. Yeah. Yeah. Handled by the criminal justice system. That's right. I mean, he, he spent over a year in, in jail. Um, he, you know, again, had to register as a sex offender. So uh, there were consequences to him. Uh, and, and, and I should be more specific. One of those consequences was before he got out of jail, the state filed a sexually violent predator petition against him. In Washington, we have a civil commitment procedure for dangerous sexual uh, offenders uh, that civilly commits them based on a mental disease or defect and a likelihood of committing future sexual acts uh, where they go to a mental hospital for treatment in theory. And so the state filed that against him. Um, and that's relevant because it comes been important in sort of what happens next, but uh, he never got out of jail. So the reason to sue him, the likelihood of him getting a job where you could garnish his wages or, you know, go after whatever, he just uh, there wasn't any money in it. So um, there was no reason to sue this guy, to be totally honest. I mean, I, I said I wasn't going to say it, but from my perspective, looking back now, it was a terrible decision. Um, he didn't have any money. And more importantly, in Washington, uh, and every jurisdiction is going to have some version of joint and several liability. But the case law in Washington, in terms of joint and several liability and its impact, um, for negligent actors and intentional actors is really confusing and very up in the air. And it's entirely possible that there's no joint and several liability. And so from a tact strategic standpoint of having <laughs> uh, a man who just gotten out of prison for murdering a little girl, um, 
possibly sexually assaulting her, sitting next to big brother, big sisters, who is a, you know, known all the way across the country as a really good organization that's trying to they help didn't kids. didn't hire him. And, there was no right. negligent hiring. There was no- That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And and to be honest, I, I don't think the case against Big Brothers Big Sisters was very good. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people around. They didn't see anything either. I, I don't know what this woman was supposed to think. But in any event, you put those two people at a defense table and ask the jury to point the finger at who they think is at fault. What do you think the jury's going to do? The jury's going to point at Mr. Sanchez and they're going to probably walk you know, big brother, big sister. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons why suing the perpetrator in this case was was really a poor decision and and they got punished for it. Well, and so this is where the case takes a turn that we're not used to and we've never discussed on here. We've never had this happen. This I perpetrator, hope no one's ever had this happen. My goodness, this perpetrator who already has a pretty extensive criminal record for violent, for very violent acts, who has pled guilty, sues your client, not only refuses to let the claim be dropped, but sues your client. Yep. So yep. how did you get involved? And, and can you talk us through that claim? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting. And for various reasons, I have my suspicions, but all, not all the details are, uh, you know, I can't represent them as 100% accurate. But basically... Um, because this man was facing a indefinite civil commitment as a sexually violent predator, and because that's a quasi criminal type proceeding, uh, he was, he's, you know, our law says he's entitled to counsel, uh, paid for at the state's expense. So he basically got public defenders to represent him in that proceeding. Well, uh, it's my belief, and there's some, a lot of evidence to support it, that his public defender was ghostwriting his objections to the dismissal of the civil suit and his initial counterclaims for defamation. Um, and my belief is the uh, public defender thought that they could undermine the guilty plea in my client's case in order to collaterally attack the basis for the sexually violent predator proceeding. Um, and not to mention just to, you know, really put the squeeze on my client and try to chill her testimony in the sexually violent predator proceeding, or maybe just to get discovery, use the civil case as a method of discovery and bypass the prosecutors, uh, in the, in the commitment proceeding. So, you know, whatever the reasons were, um, it, it was fairly obvious that there was something in Mr. Sanchez's head or in the head of his attorneys, that it was to his advantage to maintain the civil, I'm sorry, the, the civil lawsuit involving my client uh, with the offender as the plaintiff and my nine-year-old as a defendant uh, in order to effectuate his purposes in the, the other proceeding. And that's where, um, <clears throat> that's the part that really upsets me because Her lawyers, um, after they moved to dismiss the civil lawsuit and unsuccessfully, and were now finding themselves representing a victim who was now a defendant in a proceeding, 
decided to withdraw because at that point they had collected their fee for the Big Brothers Big Sisters case, and their you know the client didn't have any money to pay for representation on an hourly basis, so they dumped her, um, leaving this mother and her nine-year-old with a lawsuit where they're a defendant. Um, and to me, that's just that's just it's not only bad practice, but that's just a personal responsibility issue that I, I have I have. I don't appreciate they you make a mess you clean it up I mean that's because how it works right they're strategically poor decisions that's exactly right that's exactly right that's exactly right um but mom went to a couple of uh firms and I, you know no offense to them you know they turned her down I mean that's just straight up pro bono work and whether they'd had time or not I appreciate it Look, there's um, no money to be had here. Well, that's my point. There's Mom no money to be pay. had. Yeah, that's right. And you're you're basically you're you're chasing the rabbit hole. But um, I was asked by her victim advocate, who I had known for many years from my work at the prosecutor's office, if I would talk to the mom. And I talked to the mom, and I heard the story. And not only did the mom's story break my heart, but I got really mad <laughs> at the the lawyers that dumped her. And so I don't have really good reasons for taking the case, other than. At, you know, she caught me on a good day and, and I was too young in terms of my experience in the, the plaintiff's bar to recognize uh, uh, a money pit <laughs> or whatever you call it. And, um, and it was like, no, I, I'm going to work on this one because I'm because uh, I'm mad and, and just go from there. I, at the time, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It seemed fairly unsophisticated at the time, but I was wrong. Well, you took the case because you're a damn good attorney and a better human. Um, and to be fair, I don't think the most experienced plaintiff's attorney would see where this case was going to go. And with a teaser like that, I am sad to say that that is all the time we have for today. But next week, Rich is going to join us again. And we're going to have a chat about exactly what happened in this case. And I promise you, you are not going to want to miss this episode. Rich Anderson, thanks again for joining us. We're going to talk to you next week. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Parallel Justice. Make sure you don't miss the exciting conclusion of this one. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.